pastors here, and uh, we really appreciate you choosing to join us this morning. As you could be doing anything, um, we thank you that you would choose to join us to worship, to make space to pray, and to be in community as best we can online, um, and now learn. Um, and so we want to make sure you have the best online stories in the Old Testament. And so far, we've looked at the story of Noah and the flood. And then last week, Greg took us through the story of Miriam the prophet. And um, they've been great. We hope you've enjoyed them. And if you haven't checked them out yet, that you will do so. Today, we are looking at the story of Jacob and Esau is found in Genesis chapter 25 through 33. Yeah eight chapters. So hopefully you did your homework and, and read some of this ahead of time. As I'm not going to go through all eight chapters, you're welcome. Um, but uh, if you didn't, that's okay. We're going to kind of do my own Sclafani translation of this, uh, looking at some of the text and, and giving some summary as well. So hopefully the invitation for you is that you feel invited to sit back and relax, to enjoy the service and to, to get into the story have your Bible out for sure, um, but try to listen to this story, story as if maybe you've never heard it before. And as we do, I want to remind you that what we're about to read um, is not a fairy tale. This is a true story of sibling rivalry between twin brothers. And the reason I say that is because this has something to do with application. Because oftentimes when we read the Bible, especially some of these crazy stories, we kind of read it like we do a comic or a fairy tale where there's kind of good guys and bad guys. And so then at the end of the story, we try to identify who those people are, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys to help us identify. So, so be like Noah, be like David, be like Abraham, don't be like Cain, don't be like Saul. But the problem is the Bible isn't fairy tale. And the characters in the Bible aren't 100% good. They're not 100% bad. And so individuals like Abraham and David, they're not always good. And individuals like Cain and Saul, they're not always bad. Um, and so the problem is that if we treat the Bible like it's a fairy tale or something like this with good guys and bad guys and heroes and villains, we can impose on the Bible things that aren't there and end up missing all the point that's going on when it's trying to communicate with us about very messy characters and complicated situations. And this story is about as perfect of example as it could possibly be. It's full of real people like you and me who do both good and bad just like you and me and who are trying to figure out life and relationships and faith in the midst of a very messy and complicated world. And so my hope today is ultimately to get us to two important questions that I believe every story in the Old Testament is trying to get us to understand. And those two questions are, what does this story teach us about God? And what does this story teach us about God's relationship with humanity? So before we begin, though, let's start with some prayer. Oh, Jesus, it has been good to worship with you this morning. The set has, um, at least for me, hit me and some of the, the things I've been going through and feeling and, and just uh, desiring your will, your promises to come to fruition. And sometimes it's hard to see that in the midst of everything that's going on. And we thank you that you are present with us in the midst of everything. And we pray that as we engage this story today in its craziness, we pray that we would hear from you, Holy Spirit 
that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged and encourage us where we need to be encouraged and mostly just help us draw into a deeper relationship with you as a result. I pray this all in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm just going to warn you, I got a lot to cover, so I'm going to try to go quickly, and hopefully you can stick with me. And I want to start by going back a little bit and talking about Abraham, just to refresh our memories on him, because it's kind of hard to understand the story of Jacob and Esau and how important they are in the Bible without knowing the stuff about Abraham. So please note in your digital bulletin, which is linked in the online platform, but it's also on our website now, on it you'll find an image of this a simple family tree. And it's there because I wanted you to be able to use it throughout our time as a reference as we're going to be talking about a lot of different characters. Um, And if you didn't read Genesis like yesterday, (laughs) you may forget some of these people and who they are and their relationship to to each other. And so that's there for you. Um, Pull it out, use it as we go. Back to Abraham. So In Genesis, God starts this massive rescue mission, and it's a rescue mission to save the world from sin. And a major part of this mission is implemented through a covenant that God makes with Abraham. And amongst many other things, God promises Abraham that even after Abraham died, that God's mission to save the world would continue through Abraham's descendants. So That includes his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, and so on and so on and so on. God also promises that Abraham will have so many descendants that they will become a nation, the nation of Israel. And Israel will have this important role of living in covenantal relationship with God and withdrawing the rest of the world into a relationship with God. So as you can imagine, this is really important. And so in short, God's promising Abraham that his family is going to have a very critical role in God's rescue mission. Now, this is a really big deal, and it's also a huge risk for God to take because if you think about it, God could have implemented this plan without working with human beings. And in a lot of ways, that actually probably would have made it a lot easier, right? If you're like me and you like to cook, maybe you've had this experience before where you're in the kitchen, you you have this desire to make this wonderful meal, and then maybe this five-year-old comes in and says, hey, I would love to help you make dinner. And you know as well as I do that it will be a lot more efficient and a lot easier and a lot less messy without the help of a five-year-old, right? But sometimes we say, you know what? Let's get messy. Let's do it. Let's collaborate. Let's work together. And the five-year-old joins in, and together you make this meal. And I I gave a little picture maybe of an image, obviously. Who knows what it looks like when you join together with a five-year-old to make that thing that you probably could do much easier on your own. Well, in this story, we have God who would be the adult and humanity who are, in a sense, the five-year-olds, and they're partnering together, but they're not partnering to make dinner, but to save the world. (laughs) It's a big deal, and it starts with Abraham. Now, Abraham and Sarah have a child named Isaac, and God's promises to Abraham carry on to Isaac. Then Isaac grows up, marries someone named Rebekah, who is barren, can't have kids, But Isaac, being from the line of Abraham, has the promise of God that's supposed to continue through him. So Isaac, trusting God's promise, faithfully waits and prays fervently for 20 
years. Do you hear that? 20 years for Rebecca to become pregnant. Now, God miraculously answers this prayer. Rebecca becomes pregnant with twin boys. But even then, during this pregnancy, these boys from the very beginning seem to be always at each other. And at one point, Rebecca is experiencing these twins basically fighting inside of her. She's frustrated and uncomfortable. She asks God why this is happening. And then in Genesis 25, 23, the Lord responds, says this, Two nations are in your womb, Rebecca, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. Now hold on to this word because it's a really big part of the story, and I want us to remember that this word came before these boys are even born. Now, When it's time for Rebecca to give birth, they still don't have names for these boys yet, which is super common in the Old Testament. Often they would wait to get a sense of who this baby is or the situation or circumstances around the birth and name them based on this. So Rebecca's in labor and the first baby is born and that baby is all kinds of crazy hairy, fuzzy from head to toe, looks like this. Note, this is actually not a true picture of Esau, but you get the picture. And so they look at this baby and they're like, hold up, that's a little different. Let's name him Esau, which means Harry. So there you go. Super creative, right? Kids covered with hair. Let's name him Harry. That's what they do. Now, Esau is the firstborn, which means he's the older son and has a very important birthright as a result because the birthright always went to the firstborn sons in the Old Testament. The birthright meant that this child would get double inheritance, so gets twice as much as any of the other brothers, and also meant that after the father died, Esau would become the leader of the entire family. Now, the leader of the family was a really important role because it's kind of like a CEO of the whole family, not just of his spouse and his kids, but his spouse, his kids, his cousins, his nieces, his brothers, his sisters, everyone— He's making decisions for everybody, and we're talking big decisions, like where we're going to live, what religion are we going to believe in, how are we going to allocate our resources, right? Lots of big decisions. So if you had a birthright, this was a huge honor and a huge responsibility and incredibly valuable. And so this fuzzy little kid, Esau, has attained all these future rights and responsibilities all in this moment by being born first and being the oldest. Now, as Esau is born, the second baby starts to come out right after Esau. And what the parents notice is that the second baby is grabbing onto Esau's heel with his hand as he comes out. Can you imagine? And so as this happens, the parents are like, well, that's kind of crazy. We should name this kid Jacob, which means heel grabber. Super creative, again. Heel grabbing child, let's name him heel grabber. So if you stop and you're thinking about these names and you're like, hmm, Esau was a little less desirable in the case of these names as opposed to heel grabber, it's important to know that in the Old Testament, if you were calling someone a heel grabber, what you were saying is that that person was like, kind of like a trickster that they were deceptive, that a heel grabber is the kind of person who, who when you're walking along, you reach out and grab your heel and you trip them, 
which could be a literal thing or a metamorph a metamorphical <laughs> kind of concept. Sorry, I'm stumbling. And so here, Jacob is literally holding on, grabbing onto Esau's heel. But as we'll see later in the story, he becomes this metaphor for a heel grabber because he ends up tricking and deceiving a number of people, which we'll, we'll get to. So those are the two kids, Isaac and Rebecca have, the grandchildren of Abraham, Esau, the hairy one, Jacob, the trickster. And these two grow up and they become just as different as each of their names implies. Esau grows up, he loves the outdoors, running around outside, doing whatever, getting dirty. And as he grows up, he becomes this very skilled hunter. And his dad, Isaac, loves this. He is like, that's my boy. Go hunt those animals because Isaac loved eating wild meat. And so Esau would go out and hunt and then Isaac would just savor whatever Esau brought back. And so as you can imagine, Esau was Isaac's favorite son. Now Jacob was the opposite. Didn't like going outside. Didn't like hunting. It says that he was content to stay at home with his mom where he learned how to make clothes and how to cook and to kick take care of the details of the house, it says Jacob was a quiet man. And that word in Hebrew is the word tam, which is also translated in other places as righteous or complete or competent or self-controlled. And if you remember to the Noah story, when the, God is describing the world before the flood, there's nobody doing the will of God. Noah's the only one that says he's righteous. This is the same word. So we see Jacob's kind of fighting gender stereotypes, even back then. And as a result, Jacob is Rebecca's favorite. But Jacob was the youngest. And according to the message from God to Rebecca, it was Jacob, not Esau, that was going to be the one who would be the leader. So we should remember that. Now, moving on. Genesis 25, 29 says that one day, Jacob is cooking some stew and Esau came bursting in from the open country famished. Esau had been outside for a long time, presumably many days, and he hasn't anything to eat. So he just basically comes in and says, you know, quick, let me have some of that red stew. This is the text. I'm famished. Right? He's starving. He's exhausted. And Jacob sees this as an opportunity to get something he wants. So Jacob says, okay, yeah, sure. I'll give you some soup. But first, you need to sell me your birthright. Which sounds ridiculous, right? Double inheritance, leading the family, all for a bowl of soup, red soup, for example, lentil soup. No soup is that good, right? But Esau, I mean, minestrone maybe, but you know, not. So Esau, though, is impulsive. He has this ambivalent kind of attitude towards his birthright. And so, and so instead of saying, forget it, that's dumb, he says this, look, I'm about to die, Esau says. What good is this birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore on an oath, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil. Thanks for throwing bread in. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. And so just like that, Jacob's soup for Esau's birthright. Crazy. Now, 
Just this one story tells us a lot about these characters, about these twins. I mean, first off, you got Harry, I mean, Esau, who's super impulsive, super flippant, very flighty. He doesn't seem to care about the most important, honorable, valuable thing in his world right now, this birthright. But you also got heel grabber, Jacob, who even though he knows that his brothers like this, shouldn't be tricky, shouldn't be trying to take advantage of his brother or his impulsive behaviors and taking advantage of the right. So, so both of these characters are showing themselves to be very selfish and super self-centered. And here's the big problem. These are the grandchildren of Abraham, the people who are supposed to be carrying on God's promise. They're supposed to be proclaiming God's redeeming love for the world, and they are selfish, self-centered, impulsive, broken people, and the mischief doesn't even end here. Further along in the story, we find out that Isaac becomes very old, and he's close to dying, and uh, it's important to know that in the Old Testament, when the father was about to die, they would give a blessing to each of their sons. And this blessing was kind of like the last words, not the literal last words, like they're about to take their last breath, but kind of like I'm sharing my intentions and hopes for that son as I pass away. And sometimes in the scripture, we even see these words are full of prophecy. But the important thing about these blessings was that it would have the distribution of the inheritance. So it's very important. So we see in Genesis chapter 27, verses 1 through 4, it says this, When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here am I. Uh, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt for some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Esau basically said, giddy up, I'm on it leaves, goes hunting, and then we find out that Rebecca, the mom, overhears the conversation, and she knows that Esau's blessing is going to be huge and very special because Esau is the oldest son, and she doesn't want that blessing to go to Esau. She wants it to go to Jacob, her favorite, the one she was told from God would ultimately be the first. So Rebecca goes to Jacob and kind of gets a little Italian mafia on the situation and says this, look, son, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Now, Jacob is thinking seriously about this plan, but he starts getting into the details and brings up some concerns. Verse eleven, twelve. 12, he says, but mom... My brother is so hairy. Why? And I have smooth skin. What if dad touches me, basically? It would appear that I'm tricking him, and then it would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. Rebecca basically goes on and says, My son, 
I got this. Take, I'll take the curse, right? Let it fall on me. Just do what I say and go and get them for me. So Jacob went, got them, brought them to his mother, and she prepared some tasty food just the way his father liked it. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, put them on her younger son Jacob. She also covers the hands and the smooth part of Jacob's neck with the goat skins. Which again, right, we stop and go, how hairy is Esau, right? Like, that's nuts. Um, Stories like this always crack me up. So that said, Jacob brings the meal to his dad, Isaac, who's lying down and resting at the time, calls for him in verse 18 and 19. Says, my father, dad, yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Now, Isaac, he might be old, he might be blind, but he's not dumb, and so he's a little suspicious. In verse 20, he basically is like, how did you get all this food and get it all prepared so quickly? And Jacob then responds, the Lord your God gave me success, which always makes me cringe, right? Like, if you're going to lie, at least leave God out of the lie, right? But God totally knows what he's doing, what he says, and that's just what Jacob does. Totally lying. He's bringing God into the whole situation. So Jacob gives Isaac this meal, and Isaac is still not sure, even asks again, are you sure you're Esau? Jacob's like, definitely, I am Esau. So Isaac's thinking to himself, but the voice sounds a lot like Jacob. So he reaches out and touches Jacob's arms, which are covered with the goat hair, and he can smell Esau's clothes, what Jacob is wearing, and they smell like the outdoors. So Isaac basically says to himself, well, you sound like Jacob, but you're smelly, and you're as hairy as a goat, so you must be Esau, which again, poor Esau, he's grown up, and what do we do? Thousands of years later, we're still talking about him. He'll never live this down. FYI, this is not an actual picture of Esau, just so we're clear. But that's the way this story goes down. And Isaac gives Jacob the blessing that was intended for Esau. Jacob then quickly, I mean, he's out. And almost as soon as he leaves, Esau comes in, calls to his father and says, Dad, I'm here. I got that food for you. And Isaac's like, wait, who are you? And Esau says, it's me, your son Esau, your firstborn. I brought you the food just like you asked. I'm here so that you can give me that blessing. And Isaac, when he hears Esau say this, the scripture says he starts to tremble violently as he realizes what happens. Can you imagine And he he tells Esau, there was someone in here already before you, and he already gave his blessing to that guy. And Esau starts crying out, wait, wait, what? What did you do? No, right? You didn't. That blessing's for me, dad. Bless me. What do you mean you gave it to somebody else? And Isaac says, I'm sorry, but it seems that your brother has deceitfully taken your blessing from you. And Esau says in chapter 27, verse 36, it says this, isn't it rightly so that Jacob is named Jacob? It makes sense. This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. 
He turns to Isaac and he says, please, dad, haven't you reserved anything for me? Isaac says, I don't. I, I put Jacob in charge of you, in charge of the entire household. I gave him everything. I have nothing else to give. I mean, you can just feel the emotions of this story, right? It says Esau weeps and weeps and it says, Father, you've got to have something for me. You've got to bless me. Don't you have any words at all for me? Isaac says in verse 40, I have this for you. And he gives these words. He says, you'll live far from earth's bounty, remote from heaven's dew. You'll live by your sword, hand to mouth, and you'll serve your brother. But when you can't take it anymore, you'll break loose and run free. Now you can imagine Esau is crazy hot furious. And at this point, he hates Jacob. He hates him for how he's deceived him, tricked him, took advantage of him. And Esau begins to plot how he's going to kill Jacob. But mom, Rebecca, finds out about Esau's plans, warns Jacob. So Jacob takes off and goes away to live with some family in a whole other region. And he's gone for over a decade. And while Jacob is away, he gets married, actually twice, which is a whole other story with all kinds of crazy challenges and lessons that we don't have time for. But while he's gone, Jacob at this point has 11 children and becomes quite wealthy, mostly through livestock. So he's doing pretty good. But one day, God says to him in chapter 31, verse 3, basically, you know what, Jacob? It's time for you to go back to your family. It's time for you to return home home. And understandably, Jacob's not too sure about this because the last time he was there, his brother wanted to kill him. So Jacob is uh, questioning this, starts praying. Uh, I'm not sure about this God, prays for protection from God. And then he sets up some plans. He sends messengers ahead of him to sort of greet Esau and broach the idea to kind of appease to Esau before Jacob even gets there. The story goes on, and eventually Jacob picks up his things, his family. They start heading on this really long journey, and along the way, Jacob has this fascinating wrestling match experience with God, maybe, that we also don't have time for. But in short, what we're seeing is that God continues to bless Jacob just as God promised to uh, Rebekah before he was ever born. But we see in Genesis 33, as they continue to journey home, and Jacob is still a long way off, that they see Esau in the distance, and Esau sees Jacob. And you could just picture this scene, because what happens is Esau starts running towards Jacob with 400 of his men. And Jacob is like, oh, snap, this is not going to go well, right? So Jacob starts to bow to the ground. It says he does it seven times. He's bowing as his brother is running at him. It's essentially Esau seeing him and, and, and Jacob bowing over and over. I'm so sorry. Forgive me. I, I don't know what else to do. I'm just, I'm so sorry. But Esau just keeps running and runs right up to Jacob. In verse 33, verse 4, it basically says that Esau comes right up to him, embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they both began to weep. 
Esau embraces him because Esau has forgiven Jacob and they just weep together. They introduce each other to each other's families and these two brothers after over a decade and all the craziness that had come up before then are now reunited. Now that's not even all the story, but I'm going to stop there, right? It's crazy. And so for the remainder of our time, I want us to talk about our application. Like, what do we do with this? And, and the way I want to start is I want to start as if we were treating this like a fairy tale or a comic book. And I want to ask ourselves, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? So let's start with good. Who's the good guy? Well, some of us, as we hear this story, might think it's Jacob. We might have even thought that before we even started the story. Kind of like when you go to the store and you see a Superman comic and you just kind of know. You don't even have to turn the page. Superman's going to be the hero. And if you're familiar with Genesis, you know that Jacob has a very important role in God's rescue mission. You know that the promises that were made to Abraham are carried through Jacob. And you know that Jacob's sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And you might also know that Jacob is actually an ancestor of Jesus. So Jacob is all around an important guy. So given this status, we assume before we even start reading that Jacob's going to be our hero, right? It's got to be. But then there's others we might think, no, Jacob's not a hero. It's got to be Esau. I mean, Esau demonstrated the most outrageous, lavish love of God when he runs to embrace and forgive Jacob. Like, it's crazy. Like, how much more Christ-like can you be? So you might think, no way. It's got to be Esau. I don't know about you, but when I heard the, the story and I read the story about Esau running to embrace his brother, it brings up the picture of the prodigal son, and it reminds me of the father running to embrace his wayward son. Here we have Esau running to embrace and forgive his twin. It's full of all this emotion. So you might think, yeah, Esau is totally the good guy. But then we have to ask ourselves, okay, well then who's the bad guy? And we think, well, it could easily be Jacob, right? He takes advantage of his brother. He plots with his mom to deceive dad, steals the blessings from his brother. So, so Jacob could very easily be the bad guy. But so could Esau, right? If, I mean, if you think of Esau's character throughout, he's, he's flippant, he's a bit angry, he's impulsive, he's capricious, he doesn't think through things, he doesn't seem to care about the most important things or take responsibility for any of that. And at one point, he's plotting to kill his own brother. So that can't be good, right? Here's the thing. In this story, there's not a good guy. There's not a bad guy. Nobody's 100% good. No one's 100% bad. There's not a hero. There's not a villain. These are real people who do both good and bad things. And this is the type of thing we see throughout the scriptures. And so it begs the question, if this story, just like every other story in the Bible, isn't about heroes and villains and who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, we have to ask ourselves, what is this story about? And to get at this, I think we need to think about the bigger picture of the Bible. We have to think about how this story, just like the other stories, fits into the larger plot and those larger themes that go throughout all the texts. 
because the Bible and every story in it is about God and God's relationship to humanity. So when we encounter these stories and we want to get an application, we want to dive deeper into it, we need to ask ourselves those two questions. What does this story teach us about God and what does this story teach us about God's relationship with humanity? And so I want to do that. What, what does this story teach us about God? And there's a lot. But I think one of the biggest things it teaches us is that God always keeps his promises, no matter what. Because remember, God makes huge promises to Abraham, and he says, these promises carry on through all your descendants, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, so on. Huge promises where God's reputation, God's mission is on the line. And so we remember, right, even when Abraham has this, they have Isaac, Isaac marries someone, and he's, he's worried that this promise isn't going to happen, and he waits and prays fervently for 20 years, trusting the promise will happen, and God makes it happen. So you imagine then, if you're God in the story, as he does this faithful promise through Abraham and then Isaac, and then all of a sudden you get Jacob and Esau, right, these temperamental, self-centered twins show up. And I don't know about you, but if I'm God, I'm thinking, seriously? <laughs> these are the two? My reputation and my mission is on the line with one of these guys? And so you kind of wonder, did God kind of make this promise a little hastily? Did he not think through everything? Or should God maybe change it up a bit and add some more stipulations and some more requirements or, or at least make them prove that they're worthy of this promise? And if I'm being honest, the reason I feel like this is because I'm human. <laughs> and I've made promises that I've broken. And I've experienced people making promises to me, and they broke them for unexpected things. And we all have stories that we can tell of that happening, right? If I were God in the story of Jacob and Esau, I'd want to break that promise to Abraham for similar reasons. I'd say, you know what? I assumed you people were going to stand up to certain expectations, basic understandings and standards. You're not, and so this isn't going to work out, right? But God doesn't break his promises. God keeps that promise. God sees the people and sees their sin and the messy choices and says, I don't like that, but I can still work with that. I can still be present with them and work this out. And I don't know about you, but I think this is really important for us as Christians because God has made a number of promises to us. Oftentimes we don't even think about, both individually and collectively. God has promised that his love will never fail us. He promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. God has promised that this is not the end of the story and that God will make all things new. Huge promises. And I think it's natural for us to sometimes wonder, what if God doesn't keep that promise? Or what if I did something that disqualifies me from experiencing those promises, the love of God? And I think it's normal for us to question and want a desire for assurance. Because as I said, as people, we've all experienced times where either we broke a promise or someone broke a promise to us. And so as a result, we project these experiences onto God and we doubt and we question. 
And so stories like this one should serve as an encouragement to us, right? Like a a reminder that our God is a God who keeps his promises. Because if there was ever a time when God would want to break a promise, it would be with Jacob and Esau when they showed up. But he doesn't. God does not leverage his promises on our good behavior or anything else. When God promises something, he means it no matter what. And this closely relates to our second question, the question of what does this story teach us about God's relationship with humanity? And I think it teaches us that God works with people where they are no matter what they're going through. You may have noticed in this story that there's kind of the tension between God and people because, because God's good and God desires good things for his people and God wants us to do good with, and, and all those kinds of things, but people don't always do that, right? We, we, we make good choices sometimes and we make bad choices as well. And God nowhere in this story says, you know what, you just got to clean up everything and then I'll work with you. He doesn't say that to Jacob or Esau or anyone else in the Bible. God is ready and willing and able to meet each and every one of us right where we are. And the really cool thing about God is that God doesn't just leave us right where we are either. God never leaves us to wallow in the messiness of our sin. God meets us where we are and says, I'm here with you. Come with me thinking of cooking. Let's cook something up together. Let's join together. It's going to get messy. It's okay. I'm going to be with you, and we're going to make something amazing amazing, and and see transformation in the process. And I don't know about you, but that's some good news. Because all of us know times where we have struggled with our sin, our different challenges, you name it, and we have certain things in our life that seem to trip us up over and over again, right? It comes to our mind very easily. We're all imperfect. We all struggle with sin and who we are in this weird journey of life with God. And so we need to be reminded that your sin, our problems, our struggles, they're never enough to overwhelm or stop God from meeting with us where we are at and working with us where we are. And it's true for all of us. And it's true in this story as well. And so this story teaches us that God works with humanity wherever we are. And so when we take that, right, that God is with us no matter what we're going through, wherever we are, and that God keeps his promises, I hope that you hear something of an invitation in the midst of this crazy story. And it's that this story invites us to never count ourselves out of God's kingdom work because we all know how easy it is right we can easily say i'm not worthy i don't got my act together i messed up again i'm not clean before god whatever it is it's easier for us to do that and it's also easy for us to take these stories that we've created these heroes and say well that's why god worked with them because they did all these great things or that's why god had all these problems with this person because they made all these mistakes but that's nothing like what we see in this story. It's absolutely not true. Instead, what we saw is that God took Esau, this guy who's angry, he's impulsive, he's capricious, he's ambivalent, and has murderous thoughts for his brother. God takes him and transforms him into this incredible man of forgiveness and gives Esau one of the most inspiring stories of forgiveness in the entire Bible. It's amazing. 
And God takes Jacob, this guy who, who lies, he's deceptive, he's only looking out for himself and meets him right where he is. And God uses Jacob to carry on the promises of Abraham. God uses Jacob to be the leader of Israel and his sons to become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob becomes an ancestor of Jesus. I mean, talk about amazing. I have been talking really fast for a long period of time and, and, and we need to stop. There's so many more points that we could hit. There's so many details and intricacies that are so amazing. But honestly, I don't know about you, but I felt like in the midst of everything going on in our world that we needed these reminders today. At least I did. That God always keeps his promises and God works with and through us no matter where we are and no matter what's going on. I need to do that today, and I hope you can receive it as well. As we close, I want to share one final thought for us to consider, and that is that if God is willing and able to work with and through Jacob and Esau, and if God kept his promises to Abraham, and he worked them out through all these people faithfully present with them wherever they were, and didn't require all these different things and standards and all these things to make work out of those things, then I want you to know that I'm absolutely confident that God is willing and able and excited to work with you and me just as we are to do incredible things as well. And I don't know about you, but I think that's what 2021 needs, right? People who can be truly present with God no matter what's going on and collaborate with God to do the will of God for the glory of God. So I'm going to stop there. Brian's going to come up here in just a moment. He's going to play some music and just kind of give us some space to think through this floodgate of content. Um, but I do have a couple questions that I would love to hear from you on. And um, there'll be a link in the online platform. You can use our online connection card to do that. That would be great. Um, if you'd be willing to answer one or more of these questions, that'd be great. Question number one. What promises of God do you find yourself doubting or impatiently waiting for? And I put that there because some of those big promises that we talked about, never leaving us or never forsaking us, that this isn't the end, that making all things new, I can go many days not even thinking about them. But when I start thinking about them, do I doubt? Do I struggle waiting for these? Because it doesn't always feel like it. So what are some of those promises? Number two, how does hearing this story invite you to trust in God's faithfulness to be true to his promises? Again, think of Isaac knowing this promise and praying and waiting 20 years to see it happen. How does this encourage you? Number three, in what ways do you find yourself doubting that God can use you? And just be honest, we all do. So what are some of the ways that you doubt that God can use you in your situation? And number four, how might God be inviting you wherever you're at, no matter what you're going to be going through, to join in on God's kingdom work? Again, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, feel free to use this space as Brian plays to pray, to confess, um, to own, to give thanks, to receive. Um, I think of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and in his dream. And uh, that dream in many ways is still going, right? Like it hasn't all come to fruition. How do we 
continue to dream for the glory of God. So however you feel called to use this space, please do so. I also want to remind you that our prayer team is back on live. They are here, ready and willing to pray with and for you. And as I wrote earlier, um, when we meet together, it was this welcoming thing to be able to come to people and to pray and to see a face and who would listen and pray for us. And no, it's not the same, Um, but it's close. And so I want to encourage you to take advantage of that prayer app. Um, Brian's going to play for a moment. I'm going to close us in prayer, and then uh, we'll sing one last song of response. Father, Son, Spirit, even before you created the world, you had promises in mind, and your promises have remained true through everything. And when you go back in time, even to Jacob and Esau, but before them and after them, so many things have happened that could have caused you to to throw out those promises. So many crazy stories. But nothing thwarts your promises. And God, there's so many times where people in the Bible and people even right in our day-to-day, in our very own family, even in our own selves, where we do things that we think the promises have been taken away, that you're done working with us, that the stuff we've gotten ourselves into, um, that was the last straw. And yet this story full of so many crazy things tells us that's not true. And Jesus, we just know we're going through a lot right now. Lots of division, lots of struggles, lots of doubts, lots of chaos. And um, we, we all participated in some form or fashion, and we're all part of it in some form or fashion. And yet, God, you're with us. And so we ask that you would show yourself to be present, to lead us and guide us, to support us, and to help us not lose hope in the promises you have. Be with us as we continue in our day-to-day for your glory, just as you always have. And may we be your ambassadors. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.